All right, everybody, I do believe we are live. Welcome to another episode of the Break the Rules stream. I am your host, Lev Polyakov. It is a great pleasure to be here with Coleman Hughes, Ernst Van Zyl, a.k.a. Conscious Caracal. For those who don't know Coleman Hughes, he's a podcaster, writer, Forbes 30, under 30. I think he is going to be one of the great leaders of the tumultuous times that we're going, going in right now. So, Coleman, thank you so much for coming in here. Ernst Van Zyl, it is a great pleasure to see you again, a.k.a. Conscious Caracal. So, you are a campaign officer for Afroforum, and uh, you are a very interesting gentleman who's a... Uh, giving kind of a grim view of what's ahead and the distrust uh, of uh, liberalism. And that is the main discussion for today. Ernst, I would love for you to start just talking a little bit more about yourself, what Afroforum is, mm -hmm. and where exactly you see the United States going based on where you're seeing South Africa going. That would be the opener for the conversation. And also for all the new people in here who are here for the first time, don't forget to like, it helps the algorithm subscribe and sneed those super chats we're going to be doing super chats after so without further ado ernst uh, go for it my friend right uh lev thank you very much for having me on again uh, i was on your other show uh, the first time also talking about south africa uh, a topic that i know quite about uh, quite a lot about seeing as i, I grew up here and still live here and uh, yeah so uh, if it comes to uh, my, I think what's relevant is that I'm, uh, as you said, a campaign officer for AfriForum, and the AfriForum is the largest civil rights organization in the Southern Hemisphere. Um, we have uh, 300,000 uh, donating members, and uh, we do everything from uh, doing uh, court cases, fighting tyrannical laws, to fixing potholes, to uh, painting streets, uh, street signs, uh, planting trees, planting community vegetable gardens, uh, and doing uh, uh, setting up neighborhood watches all across the country and uh, doing uh, safety patrols everywhere. And that's just scratching the surface about what we do. Um, and I started working there in uh, 2019. And then uh, just my uh, expertise or my knowledge background, I have a master's degree in political science. And my topic that I did my master's degree on was uh, briefly property rights and left-wing populist regimes, um, specifically the Venezuelan regime under Maduro and Chavez, and then the Venezuela, uh, Zimbabwean regime under Robert Mugabe. And I contrasted those two cases to two regimes that protected property rights, namely Uruguay and uh, Botswana. Um, when it comes to uh, what I specifically write about, um, I mostly focus on matters pertaining to South Africa, but I also try to tie what I write about about in South Africa to the bigger picture of uh, issues that you might also be facing in the United States or in Europe or uh, many other countries all across the world. Because I do think there's a lot of issues here that uh, you can learn lessons from if you're an outsider looking in. And there's definitely a lot of people that are keeping a close eye on South Africa, some of them a lot more informed than others. But uh, as I say on my channel, uh, Africa is definitely still the dark continent when it comes to information today. Um, a lot of people on the outside looking in don't really have a clear view of what's going on and are often the victims of propaganda. So when it comes to that, that's what I try to do is shine a little light here uh, in Africa and give people a perspective that they can uh, maybe even apply if they're in their own countries and in their own context. Excellent. So, uh, Coleman, out of curiosity, before we really get into what's been going on with South Africa, how much are you familiar with South Africa, Afroform, with the things that have been uh, going on there? So I'm not familiar with Afroform at all. Um, I've, I've Unfortunately, I've never been to South Africa. It's, it's been described to me by 
many people I know as one of the most beautiful countries, uh, especially Cape Town. So I, I really, I, I would love to make it there sometime. And I know very little. I, I know I briefly did a, a research dive on um, the, the topic of, you know, farm attacks in the early 2000s and the, the violence that attended that and, and um, the way that was covered in the press and, and everything else. So I, I, I'm, I'm kind of familiar with that aspect of the conversation. But other than that, I'm, I'm pretty tapped out of South African politics. So I'm just, you know, I'm, a, I'm an American here in New York, you know, paying attention mostly to, to American stuff. Mm. So I think it would be interesting for Ernst to get a little bit deeper into what exactly were the policies that led South Africa to where it is right now. And then I would want to compare what exactly went on in the United States as far as when we're seeing a lot of the things that Coleman, you're fighting against happening and uh, see whether exactly it is inevitable that policies that were meant to be good for everybody end up inevitably leading to this and what exactly is the solution to that. So, uh, yeah, Ernst, uh, let me know what you think. Right, uh, Lev, maybe just to add to something that Coleman said uh, when he said uh, he focuses more on what's happening in his own country. Uh, I think that's actually the, the right approach uh, is to have that humbleness when it comes to uh, uh, other countries all across the world. I mean, I just take the approach of I used to have a lot of stronger opinions on the policies of other countries uh, until I sat down one day and just looked at some of the opinions out there about my own country and realizing a lot of people out there have no idea about what's going on here, but they're very, very confident in their views and what policies they support. And then something clicked in my mind that maybe I'm that person uh, to other countries in the in the West or wherever. When I comment on their policies, maybe I'm behaving in exactly the same uninformed way. So that made me uh, step back a little bit. So I think that's nice to hear that uh, we're on the same page there. Um, when it comes to South Africa and what policies led us to uh, where we are today, there's a myriad of them. And I think the best way to uh, describe uh, how we got to where we are is to actually explain a, a concept that uh, we often talk about uh, when doing analysis here on South Africa or the commentators here. And that is the term self-Africanization. And that's something that a lot of people have used uh, when describing their own policies in their own country. But there seems to still be a lot of people that are unaware about what self-Africanization actually means and a lot of misconceptions about it. Um, so I think when I explain that, that's going to set the, the foundation for the, the rest of the conversation. And then we can always go into specific uh, um, examples of, of, the, of this phenomenon. So specifically in South Africa, one of the key things that has put us on the path where we are today is the fact that we are a one-party state, uh, effectively. We, uh, since 1994, when the first uh, democratic elections were held, we've had the, the we had uh, the ANC win that election, and for the past almost 30 years, the ANC have an unbroken record of being the the national uh, the, the national party. Um, that's one of, and what's what comes with that type of track record is the fact that the line between ruling party and government starts becoming very, very blurry, not just to the public, but to politicians themselves, because they start acting in the way that uh, to get rid of the ruling party would destroy the entire system. Uh, it, it would mean uh, to reject the ruling party is to reject the entire uh, government as a whole. It almost becomes this chimera, the same thing. That's one of the main things. Another thing 
is where South Africa has become just this uh, kleptocracy, where the government's primary aim, not the stated aim, but the, the aim that you see uh, is the just the enrichment of many officials and giving them a, a, a free ride on the gravy train. Um, and we have some of the highest taxes in the uh, tax rates in the world, so they have a nice deep pool, but a shrinking pool to to uh, get that uh, get those funds from. And the other thing about corruption in South Africa is the fact that the corruption is not just rampant; it's mandatory. So the only way, if you were to go into business where the government is going to give you a subsidy or a tender, you need to. Uh, uh, do favors for one faction or another within the ANC. You're going to have to choose an ANC fa a faction within the ruling party or a politician within the party to get on your side, to get that business from the government. So that's something else that's disturbing. Uh, another thing is that uh, power is continuously centralized in the hands of the state. And this is a phenomenon and a pattern that you see for uh, the past 30 years where uh, it's only centralized uh, in the in the hands of the state. And the only uh, times when uh, the state loses uh, power or control over anything is not willing. It is when it's forced to because of a collapse of capacity. But this doesn't is not something that started in 1994. It form, forms part of a long trend that's older than 100 years of state centralization being the only solution in South Africa that people look towards. Mm -hmm. um, finally, I think uh, something that needs to be uh, taken into account is that with this state centralization and increasing state centralization comes things like a complete monopoly on services like power generation. So this week I did a stream on my channel that was almost interrupted by rolling blackouts. South Africa has had rolling blackouts for the past 14 years. So there are 14-year-olds in South Africa that don't know a country without uh, rolling blackouts. And there's a lot of things that contribute to that. But one of the reasons is, firstly, Government has a total monopoly on or almost total monopoly on uh, power generation. And secondly, the government has this and this is we'll get into this later, the racial agenda of the government where they have all these race laws, race quotas, uh, discriminatory laws that give mandates on how many people of every different race and group you have to employ or that have to be represented in your company and the management and everywhere. Mm. And that, uh, that trickles down to the power generation, something as critical as power generation as well, where you have a, a national utility that's struggling to even provide power, but the agenda of having a representative uh, employment and management in that in that state-owned enterprise is still priority for the government, even though you are then inherently not choosing people based on merits. I think that would wow. be the the way to to sum it up in the in the shortest terms. And we and like I said, we can, I have a lot of examples we can go into, but those are the broad hmm. uh, the broad path that got us to where we are today. I reckon. Well, before uh, we get to Coleman, I just want to say that I see that this is kind of similar to certain things that Coleman, you end up uh, fighting against when it comes to uh, racial uh, preferences and uh, various uh, things of that nature. So I would love for you to talk a little bit about that. And then Ernst, uh, I would love to find out how you mm. see liberal policies as being the things that lead to things that I would consider right. to be very illiberal. So uh, Coleman, let me know, like, where do you see the similarities in terms of the racial preferences that Ernst was talking about going on uh, today? Well, yeah. So in in you know in America, we had a brutal system of slavery, followed by um, you know attempts to de facto re-enslave black people in the South, followed by a system of segregation and Jim Crow, which uh, we 
we do sometimes refer to as, a, as an American apartheid. And uh, that ended about 60 years ago. <clears throat> and, you know, naturally in response to, you know, several centuries of subjugation, people have wanted to institute policies that repair the harm that was done to Black Americans. And the way that people have chosen to do that is basically to set up race-based policies that make it easier for Black kids to get into college, that encourage employers to take um, to put a, a you know a black applicant ahead of a white applicant uh, that's equally qualified or even more qualified. Um, you know during the recent COVID pandemic and the recession that it caused, we saw government aid programs in America as part of the you know two trillion dollar American Rescue Plan. Um, there was money available for restaurants that were struggling and. Black restaurant and uh, black and women restaurant owners were put at the front of the list for that money, and, and white men were put at the back of the list initially. There was four billion dollars available for struggling farmers, but it was only available for black farmers. There was zero dollars available for white farmers last year in that bill. Um, so we've people have, in my opinion, drawn the wrong lesson from the history of slavery and Jim Crow. The lesson they've drawn is that it's not that discrimination is wrong in all cases. It's that we need the right kind of discrimination. Uh, we need to use race uh, in, in policy for good. I think the lesson we should have drawn is that it's not really possible to use race in policy for good. All you do is you end up creating two harms in addition, you, you end up creating another harm in addition to the harm that you are trying to repair. You end up creating not just a victim class. Uh, we've already created a victim class of Black Americans that remember and, and will never forget the, the uh, brutality of slavery and Jim Crow. Now, with all of these anti-white policies in America, we are at risk of simply creating a second victim class uh, especially the white working class, the white restaurant owners, the white farmers that will never forgive that their race was was used against them. Um, the, the white people that, that have been, many white people that, that, that have been passed over for jobs and told explicitly, you know, we wanted to hire you, but we need, um, we need a person of color. And, um, and so it, it's not that all these policies are actually repairing the harm of the past. They're simply creating a new victim class that has grievances in precisely the opposite direction as, as the original black victim class. And I think that's very dysfunctional for our politics. And uh, Ernst, as far as something that is fair treating people the same way being implemented in the United States, and now we see these problems. Would you say a similar approach was taken in South Africa initially to get rid of apartheid, to make it fair for everybody, regardless of the skin color, and things ended up going haywire? If that is the case, why? And what exactly ended up happening? In a little bit more detail there for the people who don't know. Right. So uh, it's, it's very disturbing to hear from Coleman that... Uh, 
policies in your country mirror South Africa in that way, where you have these relief funds that are not being distributed equally. I mean, that's exactly what happened in South Africa just a year before. Now, I don't, I don't know if the American government just copy and pasted it or, or uh, copied the notes. Uh, the South African government uh, was like, uh, yeah, you can copy my homework, just don't make it too obvious. And then the, the American government was like, oh, don't worry, I got you. But uh, it, it seems like they just copied it because in South Africa in 2020, we had a tourism relief fund that uh, the government sets up uh, to give help to small and medium businesses that were struggling due to the, the pandemic and the lockdown, to businesses that were at risk of going under. But uh, you could only qualify for the, those relief funds if you had a, a certain amount uh, of uh, racial criteria that you met in your management and employment. Uh, and those racial criteria are called BEE or Black Economic Empowerment. Now, Black Economic Empowerment is one of those terms that uh, when you just take it in isolation, it sounds it sounds harmless. But when you actually look at what, what it produces and what means it uses to get to the goals that it uh, states, uh, it's as uh, as much about black economic empowerment as the uh, uh, National People's Re Democratic People's Republic of North Korea is democratic. So or as, as much as uh, Antifa, anti-fascist. Uh, when it comes to uh, what's happening in South Africa, there's another example that I think is a bit more next level than what you've mentioned has happened in the United States. So firstly, with that tourism relief fund, just some good news. AfriForum actually took on that, uh, took that tourism relief fund to court, took the government to court, and we actually won that court case to have it uh, declared unconstitutional and unlawful. So there's a civil, silver lining to that. But there's another case where the Tears Foundation, which fight, has been fighting gender-based violence in South Africa for, I think, a decade now, was uh, denied funding from the government when they applied uh, because their management was too white. Um, so that just shows you with absurd, absurd levels where this race agenda and these race quotas go to, where that agenda is at the top priority. Uh, if you're an organization that fights gender-based violence, sorry, if you don't uh, meet the racial criteria, you're not going to not going to get that funding to do your very noble work. Um, but at, to get back to that other question that you asked of when did this start, at the beginning, I mean, I'm, I don't have to give all the context. I think everyone in the audience knows uh, the basics of apartheid ending in 1994, ANC getting into power in 1994, um, the racially discriminatory uh, previous regime then coming to an end. But when it comes to when these new racially discriminatory laws came in, um, it wasn't that long. It was in around 1997. Um, so that's just three years. So here's some examples just to give you uh, some perspective on how early this already started. Uh, but there is a reason why it started so early. And I'll get into that and then you can, I'll, I'll gladly hear you respond. So in tw uh, 1997, uh, a white paper for the transformation of the health system in South Africa stated that medical schools are required to implement race quotas with their intake reflecting the demographic composition of the country. Also in 1997, in a white paper, uh, transforming higher education requires universities and technicons to ensure their student body is demographically re uh, reflective. Uh, also, another white paper in the late, late 90s, the Public Service Laws Amendment Act, uh, replaced, formally replaced merit with the promotion of representativity as the main criterion to be applied in appointing and promoting public servants. And then so lastly, um, just to tie that all together, what you see here is pretty much the, this idea of repre demographic representativity. Uh, in the years since then, in the, in the past 20 years, we can see what it has achieved. What it has achieved is that it has given the, the ANC government this tool, this can opener, 
to be able to open up the state uh, for political patronage and to clear the way for the ANC and their cadres to be able to uh, put uh, the politically connected in positions of power, influence, and where they can not only um, are loyal to the regime, but also uh, or fill all these uh, state positions with loyalists and people connected to the government. But those people also get... Uh, absurdly rich uh, from from these positions so just lastly there in retrospect now i mean we've had more than what's now 2022 so we've had almost 25 years of these racially discriminatory laws in south africa they just keep increasing they never put a pull back they don't have an expiration date they don't have any goals of for example saying if we reach x y and z they will be uh, uh, pulled back no they just indefinitely continue until we have a, a demographically representative society everywhere where you look and what so that's what they say they want to achieve but what have the, what has it achieved it's pretty much just enabled corruption it's been a way for the government to like i said appoint to the politically connected and their family members and their friends in uh, influential positions under the guise of we're appointing a black person to this position meanwhile it's just a person connected to the anc and uh, it's it's just made these this this very very small elite class of people that have the right connections uh just phenomenally rich like beyond your uh, imagination rich because um, they just have these uh, incredible uh, salaries that keep increasing and uh, for positions that they have no uh, uh, background in or any uh, skills to do they just get that position under this guise of uh, black economic empowerment but it's just all a, a facade for uh, firstly uh, Carded deployment, that's what we call it in South Africa, and what the ANC calls it itself, meaning putting ANC carders in positions of power to get influence there in, uh, and influence all across the state, wiping out any type of dissent, and then also making those, their family and friends, uh, just filthy rich. And mm. that's, uh, that's the, the unfortunate truth. Coleman, is this uh, different in certain ways and similar in certain ways to what you observed in the United States going on? Well, yeah, I mean, there are definitely many similarities and, and many differences. Um, I mean, one similarity is that if it were up to the people that support race-based policies, they would never end. Hmm. Even if, so, so you know, in, in America, back in the 60s and 70s, you would often see people that support race-based policies admitting that in the long run, what we want is a colorblind society. And they would say these race-based policies are the way to get there. They're a short-term solution. Um, you've, we famously had one Supreme Court justice say that affirmative action, which is uh, race-based college admissions, um, that affirmative action probably is only needed for say 20 more years. Um, the tw the 20-year date came and went, and, and nobody said, that's enough. Let, let's get on with it. Let's get on with a race-neutral state. So, um, yeah, that, that's definitely one similarity, is that if, if it's simply up to the people that support these policies, they'll never end, even if they talk as if they're going to end. You don't see anyone anymore saying in, in America, you, say, you see almost no one saying, we do, in fact, ultimately want to get to a colorblind society. Most of the people that support these policies, most definitely on the far left, have actually explicitly abandoned that goal, which is very scary. When it comes to the idea of equality, the idea of liberalism, the pattern that I'm getting here is that 
real liberalism has never been tried in a way where you're always going to have somebody coming in like a uh, fox into the hen house making use of whatever opportunities there are to gain more power over people. So my question is, are there enough checks and balances in the United States system to prevent this from going forward? Because we are seeing, you know, with various organizations, we're seeing a backlash, like, uh, for example, the organization that you're a part of, Coleman uh, Fair, Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. We are seeing some slow and steady pushback happening. I'm not sure if that's going to happen in South Africa, but ultimately, Ernst, are you a pessimist when it comes to any attempts to correct a lot of these things where... Do you view things as just being somebody has to have this iron-fisted approach to keeping things a certain way, or else if we let enough liberalism uh, enter the system, even if it's well-intentioned, eventually there's going to be a fox in the hen house. Mm -hmm. And you recently wrote an article talking about that, and that's what I want to focus on the most in this conversation. So, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, let us know. Yeah, well, uh, firstly, I want to say that's a nice callback to our, our other stream that we did where I kind of tongue-in-cheek said real liberalism hasn't been tried. Um, but that's something we actually hear a lot in South Africa. And I think maybe some context that you need is uh, the South African constitution. So in the 90s, the South African constitution isn't the leftist constitution. It's a very lib classically liberal constitution. It, it caters to all the core classically liberal values, freedom of association, freedom of expression and speech, um, property, uh, private property rights. Uh, the list goes on. Everything is there. It ticks all the boxes. And it, in the 90s, it was lauded as the, one of the best constitutions that have ever seen the light of day. And uh, liberals, classical liberals, I hate using that term because in South Africa, there is definitely a linguist, uh, a little bit of a terminology difference. In South Africa, we just talk about liberals and it means classical liberals. We don't. Mm. Uh, in, in America, I know you have to kind of hammer the distinction. Um, but <laughs> Unfortunately yeah, I'll use it for, so. <laughs> for the sake of your American audience, I will use the term, even though I find it very strange. But yeah, so, so classic, the South African constitution is very classically liberal. But in the years since this magnificent praised by everyone constitution has really shown a lot of cracks and it has really not been able to be the check on power that it was claimed to it will be and the thing about south africa is i mean i'm talking from experience where to get back actually on a serious note to that remark on a real liberalism hasn't been tried you can have as many conversations about theory as you want. You can have as many conversations about that doesn't technically qualify as liberalism. That doesn't technically. But in the end, it, living in South Africa means I can't really focus all my time and effort uh, on intentions or things working on paper. Uh, I, in South Africa, we just unfortunately, in countries like South Africa and in South Africa, we just don't have that luxury uh, results rule here out of necessity. So, um, it's nice to have conversations about how things should work on paper, but uh, when it comes to evaluating and making choices and saying, well, we're going to follow this route or this route and we're going to try this, you're going to have to base that on results. You're going to have to mm. base that on the fruit of the tree. Uh, you can't say in, in theory this this uh, should be an orange tree, but it's uh, it's it's producing pears. I mean, that's in, 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 in other countries, in first world countries, you have a lot more luxury and wiggle room. You can have endless debates about uh, what qualifies as real or not real X, Y, or Z. But in South Africa, it gets a bit more uh, necessity-based. So when it comes to maybe, a, I think, a, the main insight regarding liberalism in South Africa, and uh, that will be my final uh, thought on uh, as introduction, would be the fact that 
when it comes to liberalism in South Africa, the the biggest lesson in regards to the constitution is that the constitution is not supreme. The constitution is not the most powerful thing in a liberal democracy. In a liberal democracy, the, uh, the most powerful personal thing is the person interpreting the constitution. That constitution can stand on its head and claim whatever it wants. I know in, in America, you're very holy about your constitution, but let me tell you from a country where uh, our constitution has been manipulated and twisted in all types of ways. The person interpreting the constitution has all the power. The constitution can say what it wants. The constitution can scream as loud as it wants. Uh, it's not going to be able to overpower that person interpreting it, especially if that person interpreting it is in a very high position of power. They can make that con they can torture that constitution to say exactly what they want. They just need a, they just need the right the right tools. So and that's the lesson that I think we've learned over the past few decades in South Africa is that the constitu a constitution itself and all the nice liberal things inside it are not really sufficient uh, to protect uh, many of the liberties that you hold dear or your community, uh, the things that are, are valuable to your community. Interesting, Coleman. I'm definitely uh, going to be uh, interested in your response to that. Um, yeah, so let's see. So I'm I'm definitely a classical liberal. Philosophically, mm. I think um, it's it's the, <laughs> the the best of all the bad systems. As many people have said about both capitalism and democracy, the best of all the horrible systems. Um, and um, I mean, I, I just think the alternative is is even less sustainable. I mean, Ill illiberalism. Um, is even less sustainable in my opinion it's not it's not that liberalism is so great um or that it's so stable or that it's so easy or that it's you know easy to keep the what did you say the fox out of the hen house no it's actually very difficult it's just there's i'm, I'm not sure there actually is an alternative that that could get anything better um as far as constitutions yeah as as holy as we hold it in america um your point is true here as well, which is that here, here the Supreme Court has the ultimate say in what the Constitution means, and um, effectively that means the Constitution takes on different meanings in in different years. I, I'm I imagine that you I mean you, I think you you said you mainly pay attention to South African politics, but um, I, I assume probably that you heard that our major abortion president from the 1970s was just overturned Roe versus Wade. And um, that, that comes down to uh, a disagreement over the meaning of the phrase due process, hmm. um, the due process clause of the 14th amendment to the constitution, which was passed in the uh, late 1860s or per perhaps 1870s right after our civil war that ended slavery in order to ensure that uh, freed slaves black slaves in the south were granted full citizen citizenship rights or at least partial citizenship rights so somehow that that in the 70s that was interpreted as giving all americans the right to an abortion which is like already a matter of interpretation. I'm not exactly sure how you get there. Um, again, it's kind of just up to the opinions of the judges. And now that uh, President Trump was able to 
pack several justices onto the Supreme Court by dint of part, partly by dint of good luck and partly by dint of um, sort of a kind of playing dirty. Um, the, the, the Republicans for the first time in pretty much American history refused to allow Obama to um, replace one of the seats that was due to him um, at the end of his term. So partly because of that sort of dirty playing and partly just because several justices died under under Trump's watch, he's been able to pack the court with conservative justices, which have overturned that rule and sent it back to the states. So each state gets to decide what their abortion laws are now. Um, I mean, the, the, the lesson here is the same as the one you said, which is the people interpreting the Constitution are going to interpret it how they do. And... Um, they don't really have to make rational sense. They don't really have to stick to the original intent. And um, at the end of the day, it, 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 it starts to seem like the Constitution, the interpretation of the Constitution is just politics by other means. And uh, that that's a scary situation. Well, it seems like the two options that we have on the table here is A, if we're noticing there being a decline, try to fight as much as possible to avert that decline. Hopefully things would get better, but maybe they won't. And number two, undo liberal principles. This would be the argument of people who are further on the right, if I understand it correctly, Ernst. Undo liberal principles for a while in order to put in the strong man or strong woman in order to quell a lot of the problems that are going on. And hopefully that system is going to be undone by a new Republican liberal system that would come into its place once that leader gets too power hungry and the people get tired of him. So those seem to be the two options in my head right now. Neither of them are great. Ernst, am I, uh, am I missing something here? Is there any other option in front of us? Well, as long as you're... As long as you're thinking within the state centralization model, then yeah, then those are your two options. But uh, the thing is, that's uh, well, more or less. But uh, uh, neither of those options are the option that uh, we, for example, subscribe to. For us, it's uh, uh, a lot more, uh, a lot more of a different uh, break with uh, what has been common knowledge in in big quotation marks for the past uh, or common practice in the past few uh, decades or even century. Um, and we can get into solutions later if you want, but uh, I'd like to uh, talk about some other things in South Africa regarding this topic of, uh, of liberalism first, and we can, I'll gladly go into solutions and proposals uh, nearer to the end because they're more of a white pull. Um, they're the more pr uh, positive, <laughs> the positive way to end it. Um, I think something that Coleman said that's interesting is when it comes to uh, liberalism being the this only option, uh, that all the other options are, are much worse. Um, what we're seeing in the world that we're living in currently with many things going backwards, many things uh, becoming uncertain and uh, a lot of chaos uh, seeming to enter the fold is the fact that this is the, the world that was set up by liberalism uh, with the, the fall of the, the Berlin Wall. The, the previous three big ideologies of the previous century, fascism, liberalism and communism, communism and fascism are dead. Like there's not really uh, they're not really making a comeback. Um, liberalism uh, came out uh, victorious, maybe not because it knocked out its opponents, but rather because its opponents collapsed. 
Um, but yeah, it's been the it's been an ideology that's been able to shape a, a large part of the world in its image for for many decades now. And but unfortunately, what we've seen now is specifically in our times is as we uh, we enter a stage where things aren't as perfect as they seem. History in the end did not end. Um, but it's still continuing every day. Um, the people are coming to a hard realization that maybe we didn't reach the end of history. Maybe we didn't figure it all out. Maybe we are still struggling to find uh, the right type of solutions. Um, and the thing is, I think a common theme that you're realizing is that, and you're going to, I think, see it more and more in the coming years, is that more and more people are really struggling in the times that we're living in. Things are getting scary. Things are getting uncertain. You don't know where to get your truth from. You don't can't rely on these institutions that you could rely on for so long. Um, for so long, people could just trust the experts. For so long, there were solid institutions in, in the West that you could rely on to give you the objective truth, to give you the clarity that you need when things seem chaotic and confusing. But that that isn't there anymore. These institutions have fallen uh, pretty much to a point where people actually have a clearer view of the world if they don't trust some experts, it seems. Um, a good example is during the COVID pandemic, where on the one side, it's declared that you can't go protest because um, it will be a super spreader event. You can't protest lockdowns, but then when you're protesting for Black Lives Matter, then you're encouraged to go out and protest in as many people as you can because uh, you need to send a message and it's not going to be a super spreader event, and that's according to the experts. And that's just one example of, uh, of what's happened. People are desperate for clarity and truth, and they can't get it from the institutions that they used to rely on anymore. And it's not those people's fault. It's those institutions' fault that they have just become pretty much... Uh, captured but uh, the thing about uh the other thing that's that's also coming to the fore is that i mean the the big word of the day is wokeism and critical theory and whatever and this is the big 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 baddie but it's liberalism has failed to stem the tide against radicals like that radicals on the left um when it comes to these types of critical theory and um basically ra race essentialism on the left um, and race nationalism on the left. It's its not been able to really stem the tide in regards to that. It's actually in some senses uh, contributed to it, and it's also not been able to stem the tide, classical liberalism, in uh, the in continued encroachment of statism, the increasing amount of power being handed to a very small amount of either corporations that are in uh, in allegiance with the state or the state itself. And that's due to a very mm. simple fact. And that's the fact that the more individualistic your society becomes, the larger the state has to become to be able to be uh, able to uh, manage all the affairs of all those individuals. That's the thing. That's unfortunately the death cycle of liberalism that's been observed is that statism, as more people become more dependent on the state, they lose all these other things like traditions and community and all these and family bonds and structures that used to give them all, all the support and they become dependent on the state, which makes them more individualistic. And the more individualistic they become, the more statism they demand to be able to uh, just keep things together and keep things uh, stable. So where you replace custom and tradition uh, from the from the state point of view, you just replace that with law. And the more uh, and a good example of that maybe to to end off with is John Locke, this big liberal uh, mind, said that it, uh, the end of law is not to abolish or restrain, but to preserve and enlarge freedom. Now there's something in there that needs to be uh, pointed out, and that is. If the expansion of freedom is secured by law, then increasing freedom requires expansion of law to maintain it. 
and that is in the end the 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 collapsing flaw that I've seen in in liberalism. And I'm not the only one. A lot of people have identified that within liberalism itself are the seeds of its own demise. As it reaches its goal of increased individual autonomy, its own system starts becoming constrained by the fact that the, the utopianism and the idealism of the ideology doesn't meet the reality. And the bigger that gap between reality and idealism becomes, the more unstable the system becomes to a point where people just completely lose trust in the system and its institutions. And that's very close to where we are now, not just in uh, South Africa regarding many of our liberal institutions, but F, from what I've seen in the United States and many other Western countries as well. Coleman, your, your response. Yeah, okay. So I'm not so pessimistic. I think mm. um, most of the points that you make about liberalism are true. Despite them, it's, um, like I said, I think it's it's the best of all the bad systems. It's, it's a bit like, you know, I can hear people critique capitalism for hours and actually agree with most of what they're saying until they propose a replacement, um, which is, is almost in, in every case worse. Um, listen, you, you're, you're, you're right that, uh, the state has replaced the community in many, in many, uh, places that's happened in America as well. Um, there, you know, a hundred years ago there, I, I've read about how more than a hundred years ago, but you know, how, how the, the welfare state was in many cases unnecessary because people simply helped each other, right? People pooled resources to help those who couldn't work and, and so forth. Um, I mean, part of what happened is ur urbanization. People moved to a brand new city and, um, you know, lots of immigration in America as well. And <clears throat> tight-knit communities give way to uh, living among millions of anonymous strangers, which necessarily requires a, 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 a bigger hand with the state. And um, I worry, I, I worry that I, I sort of agree with these critiques of, of liberalism, but I think the reason that, you know, communitarianism, communitarianism is eroding is uh i think it's driven by somewhat inevitable economic and you know migration based forces that sort of can't be rolled back by policy um and so it it, it seems like the 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 i would say our task is to recommit to liberal principles and to fight those who want to destroy them. And, and I don't think it's such a hopeless, uh, you know, as hopeless a task as, uh, as, as you, you make it out to be, I think there have been many wins, um, in America, at least I, again, I cannot speak to South Africa. I can speak to America whenever it's put to the vote, people in general prefer classical liberal principles they don't they don't want to tear down the system um you know like the 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 activists on the far left on the far left they have a lot of sway in the colleges they have some sway in corporate america but when the people are asked to vote 
they they vote those policies out. It happened in San Francisco recently, which is one of our most liberal cities, our most left-wing cities, in fact. Every time a referendum comes up of whether you want some, you know, a, a woke district attorney that's not really going to punish crime or a, a classic, um, you know, a kind of more common sense approach, people vote for the common sense approach. They voted out the school board for too, being too woke. In, in America, we, we uh, sorry, in New York, we elected Eric Adams, who basically ran on an anti-crime platform. And um, in uh, many cases, I, I don't know how he's doing right now. Uh, crime is still up. I mean, we'll see. The jury's still out. Crime is up, but you know, it's, it's not controlled by one person, of course, which is not to excuse him. But the, the point is, the point stands. He ran on an anti-crime platform saying, I'm a former cop. Crime, crime, crime. I'm going to get it. I'm going to get it under control. No bail reform. Tough on crime. And, you know, New Yorkers of every color went and voted for him in droves over the candidates that were soft on crime. So, um, so in other words, I think that liberalism is still very much alive in the population as a whole, even though the elites in the elite, the elites are afraid to defend liberalism. The elites are uh, a kowtow to wokeness. Um, it's still, it's still alive and well and worth defending and uh, defending is defending it is not a lost cause. That's a silver lining right there, Ernst. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, maybe uh, I have, uh, very interesting points made by Coleman there, and I, I do have to agree that there are, I will definitely concede that there have been uh, victories against the tide of uh, left-wing uh, redistributive populism, as I call it, uh, on your side, uh, but or your side of the big salty pond. But when it comes to... I think my own context, just I think it's important to understand where my more pessimism comes from. And I think firstly, it's uh, being a the member of a minority community in South Africa. Now, maybe just for your American listeners, as soon as you hear the term minority, your brain uh, jumps to completely the opposite of what you're seeing on screen. Um, but yeah, I'm a super my part of a super minority in South Africa, racially, linguistically and culturally, um, linguistically, uh, um, I'm Afrikaans, culturally I'm an Afrikaner, and uh, as you can see, I'm white. So those three uh, different uh, intersections of minority make me a, a very small minority in South Africa. And the implications that come with that, firstly, for a minority group uh, in South Af uh, in any uh, democracy, party politics is a uh, is hell. It's it's very difficult to get anything uh, if if the majority of people don't really prioritize your community-specific problems. So a good example would be um, my community. Uh, the, the problem of farm murders in South Africa, as Coleman briefly mentioned earlier. I come from a, a farming community. I grew up in a small rural town in the, the Western Cape. Uh, and uh, most people I knew farmed. Uh, I have family that currently live on farm. Mo I have multiple family members that are farmers and uh, are in agriculture. And uh, the thing is, for someone from that time and Afrikaners, our cultural identity is tied to the to agriculture. I mean, uh, another term for Afrikaners is boers, which literally means farmers. We're so close to the profession of farming culturally that we uh, view uh, we we uh, connect ourselves to the term farmer. We call ourselves just self-refer to ourselves as farmers. 
So when it comes to a, a scourge like farm murders, uh, in the end, uh, if you're looking at a party politics uh, system, the majority of South Africans don't have the, the same type of uh, connection to, to agriculture that uh, relatively uh, the Afrikaners would have. So if we want to put uh, farm murders on a, on a high priority and have it classified as a priority crime, it's a very uphill battle. It's very difficult. Another example would be uh, my language of Afrikaans. So Afrikaans is a, a language uh, in South Africa that's spoken by, I think, about 10 million people. Um, it's not just a, a white language. Actually, the majority of Afrikaans speakers are not even white. But it's a, a language that is also closely associated with uh, my culture of uh, Afrikaners. And we have uh, Afrikaans schools and Afrikaans institutions and Afrikaans newspapers and radio stations and all these different cultural, uh, ag cultural agriculture, agriculture uh, um, infrastructure. So when it comes to your language of Afrikaans, uh, after the, the ANC took power, they uh, pretty much started phasing out Afrikaans out or started a campaign to phase out Afrikaans out of all these uh, institutions of learning, whether that be they started off with the, the universities. And I mean, I went to a, a university that was formerly classified as an Afrikaans university. It's a, a but uh, nowadays it's it's really not, it's only Afrikaans in name. It's now pretty much an English university. So what's happened is you have all these schools that are uh, Afrikaans medium, uh, but then you have one or two or three students being uh, entered into those schools or institutions of learning. And then the individual rights trump the, the group rights of the, the Afrikaans institution. So then uh, the government uses its pressure to pretty much uh, institute English very slowly, firstly through dual medium and then single medium. As, uh, as soon as dual medium is established, single medium is the next step. And then uh, there's no more Afrikaans learning institutions. And coming from a, a organization that fights for the rights of uh, uh, linguistic communities in South Africa, mother tongue education is important. It's not just a trivial thing. Taking away people's opportunity to study in their mother tongue is a serious matter. And it's an, an alien matter to people that speak English as their only language because uh, they say, well, what's what's the point? Why are you so, why are you so hung up on this on this fact? Well, the fact is um, I'm very blessed to have uh, to have grown up bilingual and be able to speak uh, English very well. But uh, many people uh, are, are, don't have that uh, that luxury. Many people don't have that privilege. They can only. Uh, many people in my community of Afrikaners can only can um, uh, speak Afrikaans much much better than they can speak English. Meaning, when they go study, for example, tertiary education, they uh, will have, they are at a significant disadvantage if they have to study physics in a language that's not their first language. But anyway, to get it back to to liberalism. What you have there is the the trumping of the individual over the group or over the community. And what we've done now is now what, what happens is as these uh, institutions of learning and other facets uh, of society are being uh, just conforming to a, they're pretty much being standardized is the correct term. Because if you're, you're running a massive uh, state that runs on liberalism as its philosophy, a standardized population is, is much better uh, than a, a very diverse one. That's uh, a very big obstacle in South Africa. So what we've done, and we can get into those solutions later in the stream, uh, is we've had to start building our own educational institutions crowdfunding basically getting people in the communities together to build these uh, these new institutions but when it comes just to to end off there so when it comes to to liberalism i have a very different experience in south africa as a minority group uh, where 
they, we don't have group rights. We don't have any rights in South Africa that protect things like uh, language and culture. And um, uh, I, I, maybe a, a hot take to end on the a big lesson that Afrikaners, my own culture, learned uh, is the previous regime pretty much had Afrikaners put all our eggs in the state basket. We depended on the state to preserve our language and our culture and to provide jobs and employment and prosperity. But when the state uh, changed hands, when that system fell, you, the Afrikaners were left with, uh, with nothing. We were left on our asses with, uh, with none of those uh, uh, luxuries that the state were, were granting us. So actually, the, the big lesson that we've learned is that uh, you shouldn't trust the state with all these things. Don't trust the state with the preservation of your culture or your language or your uh, education. Because in the end, um, uh, if that state were to collapse or were to become malicious, uh, you lose all of that. And then you have to start from scratch again. So the, that's just some context in regards to where my my pessimism might come from, from my own personal context as a, as a super minority at the southern tip of Africa. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm curious what Coleman thinks of this. But first, uh, I want to add a bit more silver linings that Coleman may agree with me here on. We have now Barry Weiss uh, starting the uh, University of Austin and having a lot of uh, professors who are now unwelcome in leftist institutions becoming a part of that. We have people listening more to Ben Shapiro and Joe Rogan than they do to uh, the mainstream news outlets, including Fox News. So we already have a sizable portion of the population that does not like what's happening, and they're voting with their wallet, they're voting with their feet when it comes to the state that they end up moving to. And in that sense, the state that we see under Biden seems to be a very uh, uh, fragile-looking one as far as just the amount of influence and power they're able to exert. I don't know if this is something that's going to remain that way. The reason why I say that is it gives a little bit more confidence to me that the idea of liberalism would be kind of like what you Ernst were, were talking about, where people who are independent of the government end up doing their own thing that grows in popularity. The more things of that nature are allowed to occur, and they do that with Amish communities, with Mormon communities in the United States, where people do have this degree of autonomy that they are able to create their own societies. And if something, I think, is, gets to be very influential, other people are going to start adopting to it and voting again with their feet and with their wallet. So I don't know, Coleman, if you would want to expand on that, if there's any counters that you would want to give to what Ernst was uh, talking about. But at least for me, that, that's what I see as being the silver lining here. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, no counter to that. That's uh, all very, it's all very interesting and, and uh, sad. Um, and it makes perfect sense why why you would distrust liberalism as a result. Um, I guess one of the, you know, one of the interesting disanalogies is that uh, in America, black people uh, were a minority, but we're a minority that has managed to take a huge share of cultural power and, um, a minority that is seen extremely sympathetically, sometimes to a fault, by one one of the two major parties, and it's a two party state. And and so, I, I think that's kind of a that's kind of a key variable because you know absent that, we might be in a, in a position much closer to the position of Afrikaners. 
um, which is to say the state leaves you behind and you're basically in the position of having to build things for yourself. Um, that actually, I mean, that actually was the position of, of, of black people for the majority of, of American history is, you know, building our own schools because we weren't allowed to be educated and, um, you know, and, and, and all the rest uh, shut out of the mainstream economy. So had had to build, you know, shut out of the baseball league. So had to build the Negro baseball league, you know, there's parallel everything. Um, but, but we actually, we had a transformation and that transformation was the civil rights era. And, um, people like to understate how massive a transformation that was, but it really was a absolute transformation of hearts and minds towards increasing sympathy for black Americans on the whole, um, like I say, people like to downplay that, but it was huge and it was, it, it happened and people's hearts and minds actually changed semi-permanently, at least a critical mass of people enough to the, uh, you know, to the point where ever since then, any, any concern from the black community at minimum has been taken seriously. Um, whether or not it's been solved or addressed, it's been taken seriously. And that is, um, I guess it's it's hard to overstate the importance of that as a minority in in a situation where, um, you know, like you said, majority rules in, in a democracy. So, by the way, before Ernst uh, replies, I'm curious, uh, Coleman. One of the arguments that people further in the right give against some of the reforms that were made have to do with the First Amendment and uh, freedom of association. That's something that uh, they talk about as leading to the government having much more control over who people are allowed to associate with, over their businesses. I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that, if you uh, looked into that part of it as well with the First Amendment freedom of association. I'm, I'm a little bit confused. So from what I understand, the idea here is the First Amendment originally had freedom of association, where you as a business owner would be able to associate with specifically whoever you want to. So it wouldn't be like Jim Crow, where you cannot have certain people drink from the same water fountain and so on. This would be purely based on the the desire of the person who has the business as far as who you employ as far as if you're running a hotel who can stay in your hotel obviously it was very bad when people racially discriminated against people based on those characteristics but the problem is that if i were to be devil's advocate here would the government not have more control now over the decisions that people make and start this low creep into more tyranny when there is less of that freedom of association like ideally people would have association with people based on the content of their character as opposed to the color of their skin and i can understand why they that would be taken away but uh curious if you have any thoughts on that if not we can definitely uh move things uh, back to ernst yeah no that's a i i see what you're driving at i i think i think what you're driving at is um when jim crow was ended in 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 america when the civil rights act of 1964 was passed it made employment discrimination illegal in, in addition to simply um in addition to preventing states from instituting jim crow laws it also made 
employers discriminating illegal uh, on, on the basis of race. And um, I think the first thing has ended up being much more important and, and um, um, unambiguously good than the second thing. So obviously states cannot make laws that separate people on the basis of race. And that's, that was the, the most important achievement of, of the civil rights era was getting rid of Jim Crow, the, the Jim Crow legal regime. Um, this other thing of making <clears throat> of of um, making it illegal for employers at like a mom and pop shop to racially discriminate um, it makes it, it makes sense at, at first glance, but th then what's actually happened uh, in, in practice is that there have been just like an absolute flood of lawsuits many of which are bullshit and because you know someone gets fired and if you get fired it, it is really tempting to play the race card if you're black even if that's even if that had nothing to do with it and um what has happened is you know the eeoc which is our body for uh um, litigating these these kind of racism lawsuits it's basically gotten to the point where em many employers would not would would prefer simply not to hire a black person to begin with because they're worried they would never be able to fire them right mm -hmm. and employers won't say this out loud but if you if you have a restaurant and you know you you have a black waitress versus a white waitress white waitress you may simply view the black waitress as a ticking time bomb in a volatile industry where you may have to fire her for some reason and if she claims racism that's a lawsuit for you. It's legal fees. It's whereas the white waitress, you know, if you need to fire her, you can, and it won't ruin your business. And so you just go for the white rate, the white waitress. And, um, and so I think that the, the, the effect of actually banning employment discrimination has been far less, um, it's, it's less unambiguously good than many people would, would want to think. And uh, with that, I'm going to go bring it back to Ernst. If there is one other thing I wanted to say about that is with uh, my own family's perspective in the uh, former USSR and Russia, you know, going back generations, there was a lot of discrimination not based on racial characteristics, but based on uh, class where you would have former yeah. serfs who were freed who were not allowed to have certain jobs, were not allowed to uh, have... Uh, you know, a higher end uh, work, even if they were perfectly capable of doing it. So they couldn't be promoted to a certain position. They would have to remain in a, a low position. And I think that things of that nature breed resentment over time. The ideal, I think, and I think all of us could agree on, even if, uh, Ernst, you may not like the way liberalism has fared so far, the ideal, I think, would be having a system where people could be fairly, as far as, as, far as possible, judged on what they bring to the table, regardless of any other features, and that way people feel like if I work hard enough, and if I work smart enough, then they are going to hire me, I'm going to be able to work, 
uh, or if I'm not good enough, then it's only on me. It's only on my lack of ability to do something, and, you know, life ain't fair. So mm. that, I think, would be the ideal that we could all agree on, but Ernst, you don't really see this uh, working out in practice, so uh, we can take this conversation wherever you want, but I just wanted to throw that in there. Mm. No, I think uh, you make an important point there, and that is uh, maybe to add it to the South African context, and I think maybe the context that the United States might find itself in in the future, when things start going wrong, when the when times are not good, for example, in South Africa, where I had to check my rolling blackout schedule before I could make this, uh, could tell you I could do the stream, uh, that's my reality. And that reality is a, a reality of where these types of uh, discriminatory laws have just uh, taken over they they are the precedent they are the they enjoy priority over pragmatism so when it comes to something as critical as a power generation for the entire country where the country has had rolling blackouts for more than a decade um the government just can't leave it they can't leave the racial agenda they have to have the the racial agenda but as i said earlier there are fanatics within the anc that do it because they are genuinely just ideologically possessed but there are others within the most, I think, are driven by the fact that uh, racially discriminatory laws are just the perfect vehicle for corruption. It's just the perfect vehicle, firstly, to get people in positions that are loyal to you. And secondly, to get people into positions that you want to uh, benefit, people that you want to give a nice uh, ticket on the gravy train. That's why they cling to it so much. And unfortunately, many people in South Africa don't see it that way. Many people still see it on face value of, oh, it's called black economic empowerment. Its goal, stated goals are to empower black people and to right the wrongs of the past. Therefore, it must be good. But uh, like I said, in, in South Africa and many similar countries, uh, when things get as dire as they are, have become here in many facets, uh, you have to leave that uh, idealism and see things for what they are. Um, and that's the thing. When it comes to South Africa, uh, Coleman said earlier, much earlier in the stream, he talked about rejecting racially discriminatory policies based on it being wrong in principle, not because it's just uh, the wrong type of uh, discrimination at the time. And that's the line of thought that we've seen in South Africa. You can actually see that thought in action. I was uh, doing a panel debate on uh, one of the biggest uh, channels in South Africa uh, and we were debating. I was on a panel with two other guests, and one of the guests was someone that supported uh, black economic empowerment policies or racially discriminatory policies. And he made the argument that uh, these things are necessary, that that it, we can't just reject them because they're wrong in principle. Uh, my stance was call me controversial, but racially discriminatory laws, literal systemic uh, racism is wrong in principle no matter who it benefits. But uh, this person was not able to see it that way. He, was, he only saw it through the lens of uh, we need to now have positive uh, discrimination to right the wrongs of the past. But all you do is you're, you're digging a new pothole to fill a, uh, an old one. I don't know if you even know what a pothole is, Lev, or anyone in America. It's a hole in the road. Oh, of course. Because the road is not being maintain, maintained. <laughs> oh, believe me, New York so, City. We have many yeah <laughs> just making sure mm. um but because because uh, yeah i just see uh many people looking at south africa's problems and they seem alien they're like uh they, they don't even have a frame of reference for some of the problems that we have and i have to kind of remind them that this is 
you can very realistically go down this path of self-Africanization. And as I said earlier, self-Africanization is a mindset. It's a philosophy of government. And uh, I see a lot of your politicians there in the U.S. flirting with this philosophy. They flirt with this, uh, this philosophy of governance. And uh, if they if they are to, were to get drunk on that ideology, they're going you're going to go down the same path if enough of them uh, start following it. So maybe just to end off there, when it comes to uh, racially discriminatory laws in South Africa, the liberalism on paper would state, well, people would reject uh, these laws based on them being in principle wrong. But you you have a government that has dozens of racially discriminatory laws and these racially discriminatory laws directly uh, contributing towards many key services like uh, electri electricity uh, um, uh, generation failing and uh, that government is not voted out. Now the ANC is in trouble in regards to the next election. They, they, things don't seem that nice but the fact that they've been able to cling on to power for more than 30, uh, almost 30 years Show, also to, uh, raises some interesting and important questions about voting and assumptions about democracy that people will just recognize well this government isn't doing a good job in america you have a very uh, you have the luxury of your government shifting at least between two parties in south africa uh, for my entire life i haven't known any other party than the anc i've never had a president from another party before Coleman, however, I really want to read this comment, and I'm going to read the super chats afterwards. So, sneed those super chats. That's going to be towards the end. But I love this comment. It's not a super chat, but I got to read it. It's from uh, Mana Patria. In South <laughs> Africa, the potholes are so deep that driving your car has become like playing Temple Run. I can, I can say that that's absolutely the gospel truth. Yeah, I like that. So New York still has mm -hmm. a ways to go before we get there. But yeah, Coleman, uh, let me know what you think of uh, what Ernst said. No, it's, be it's beautifully said. I, I think um, it reminds me um, when the Civil Rights Act was passed in, in 1964, the lead sponsor of the bill was a senator named Hubert Humphrey, Democrat. And when they were arguing over the intent and the language of the bill. Um, many Southern Democrats and, and uh, some Republicans as, as well said, how do we know that this bill isn't just going to be racial preferences for black people, right? How do we know it's not gonna be reverse racism? And uh, the lead sponsor of the bill, Hubert Humphrey, he said, if, if a single word of this bill justifies or allows racial preferences or reverse discrimination, I will eat the entire bill page by page on the Senate floor. Um, and it's still in the language of that act. It's in the language of the Civil Rights Act that nothing in this bill requires racial preferences or, or anything, any, any use of race. Um, you know, and then jump to five or six years later, we were already practicing affirmative action, race-based affirmative action in colleges and in the workplace. And it's amazing. It is amazing how quick that happened and how, how much whiplash was experienced by the framers and supporters of that bill. Um, including many key figures in the civil rights movement, like Bayard Rustin, who organized the March on Washington. Um, 
it, when the Nixon administration, and it was really the Nixon administration, started practicing affirmative action, race-based preferences, racial discrimination, let's call it what it is, full scale, um, many people in the civil rights movement were shocked and, um, and betrayed. Um, many Jews as well were betrayed in this country because Jews were a, a great friend of, of black Americans during the civil rights movement. And when I think it was William DeFunnis was one of the first cases of a, a, a student, Jewish, Sephardic Jewish student admitted to college that didn't get in and sued uh, as a result of um, affirmative action policies. Um, it was, I think that that's when there, be, there began to be a fracturing between the, uh, the Jewish elite and the African-American elite at that time. And you had many, many Jewish elites um, form the kind of neoconservative, what was called the mugged by reality folks that, that basically said we were down with every principle of the civil rights movement. We were marching alongside. And all we wanted was a race neutral state. And we really believe that. And now it's been abandoned. And that's, that's pretty much the state we've been in. But I think it's worth talking about really what the reason for that was, which is that a lot of people who supported the civil rights movement naively believed that once you got rid of all racist laws against black people, that black poverty would evaporate overnight. Uh, and it didn't at all. And in fact, you had, you know, the big, the, the longest and worst riots in our country's history, you know, other, other than the George Floyd era riots, uh, immediately following the, the victories of the civil rights movement. And I think that really shocked people into thinking we need to do something and, um, or else the bloodshed is, in the cities is not going to stop. And I think that that is part of what set us on this path. Yeah, Ernst, like, is there any way to preserve the liberalism we were talking about? I think since we're wrapping it up right now, it's going to be 12 mm. o'clock in about 15 minutes. Now would be the time to dispense the white pill, so to speak, speak <laughs> about ways out. But also, you know what, though, yeah. before before that, I am interested, uh, Coleman, going back to you, I am interested in potential trajectories where you see this whole thing going in the United States, where maybe, and what I hope is that organizations like FAIR are going to be successful and people are going to start stepping back away from a lot of their radicalization, whether we're talking about things that are going on with gender, whether we're talking about things that are going on with race, maybe now is like this hot moment where eventually just like how a lot of uh, liberal-minded intellectuals were art and Stalinists back in the uh, 1930s and uh, 40s. Uh, read the Red Decade, by the way. It talks all about it. Much like how people go into these phases, they end up slowly going out. Uh, trends change. Is it that, or do you see it going in a much more dangerous, frantic direction where maybe uh, FAIR is not going to be successful and organizations like that? And if that is the case... What then? How do we correct the ship then? So these two potential trajectories, unless you have a third one, Coleman, I would love to hear about any any predictions here. Well, I don't have predictions. I have hopes. 
and I have things that I'm going to fight for personally, what I'm going to fight for is a race neutral state, the state that is uh, in which uses of race are truly anathematized and prohibited. Many countries in the world have already achieved this. Um, many countries that we view favorably, I mean, that Americans at least view favorably, such as France and Spain and many other European countries, they don't even collect race statistics, much less use race um, to, to dispense or prioritize individuals over others. So we need that in America. We need to be able to fight for that full force. At the same time, we need to be clear-eyed about the problem of uh, poverty and underdevelopment uh, in which disproportionately affects the black community, right? I think every, every cent of money that went to Black Lives Matter, every cent of the $23 million that New York City spent on anti-bias trainings for public school teachers, which were ridiculous and don't work, every cent of that should be targeted towards you know, after-school tutoring programs for kids, supporting the charter schools that are really good to help poor black kids and poor white kids in the critical early years of their life develop the skills to compete when they're adults. Our entire system of, of allegedly helping minorities in, in America is to basically wait until they're 18 when, when most of the work is, when it's basically too late, put them into a college with people that are more prepared than they are put them into jobs over other people and say that we're helping them. In other words, it's to skip the most critical years and, and only intervene when we can actually do very little for their deep skill building and, and, and so forth. And I think it should be precisely the opposite. We should focus on zero through age 15 with, with a dogged focus and direct all of our resources towards that. And then once you're 18, you compete with the rest of the world. It's a race neutral world out there. I'm sorry. You can't, you can't, we can't have, we can't racially rig the system forever. So that's what I'm going to be fighting for. I, I don't know what um, actually lies in store for us, but I. Well, I would, there, uh, would there be a contingency plan in other words? Because that's at least the way I like to think. I like to have high hopes for a particular model and do whatever it takes to get to that point. <laughs> But in case things don't work out, is there a plan B? You're speaking like uh, the, the governance of a country is like a, like a, like a lunar landing operation or something. <laughs> exactly. Uh, this... I don't know. There's no, I, I mean, I plan to, no, there's no, there's no plan B. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I plan to fight for plan A. And in a, in a pluralist democracy, you're, 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 <laughs> you're probably never going to actually just win. Like, it's, it's not really how it works. There's always going to be people that disagree with you. You're always going to be fighting. Um, but, uh, I, yeah, no, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure if contingency plan is, is needed. I'm not moving to Canada if I fail. <laughs> Nobody ever does. Yeah. <laughs> no, at that point, you'd have to move to Antarctica or something like that. Mm. Uh, with the penguins like Yuri Bezmenov was talking about. He was the guy who said that. Uh, if, yeah, if yeah. You get, yeah. If you don't, by the way, Coleman, do you know Yuri Bezmenov? Uh, no. So he was, a, he was a, a KGB defector to the United States. 
And I think uh, he has a lot of quotes that a lot of this conversation would uh, resonate with. So, for example, he was talking about, uh, I'm going to do my best Russian accent, which comes naturally to me. And then we're going to go to Ernst. You see, the useful idiots, the leftists who are uh, idealistically believing in the beauty of Soviet socialist or communist or whatever system, when they get disillusioned, they become the worst enemies. That's why my KGB instructor specifically made a point. Never bother with leftists. Forget about these political prostitutes. Your leftists in the United States, all these professors and all these beautiful civil rights defenders, they are instrumental in the process of the subversion. Only to destabilize a nation when uh, their job is completed, they are not needed anymore. They know too much. Some of them, when they see that Marxist-Leninist has come to power, obviously they get offended. They think that they will come to power. That will never happen, of course. They will be lined up against the wall and shot. So I will send you guys the full video later on for you to take a look. But he was talking about how if America goes down, this is the last bastion. Then he's going to have to go to Antarctica with the penguins and hang out there. (laughs) So that's why, Coleman, I really do believe in what you were Mm -hmm. talking about. As far as contingency plans, the reason why I mentioned that is there are, I think, people who are further on the right who may look at something like the model you're proposing with high hopes and say, man, I wish this would happen, but you know what? I am so black-pilled, this is not going to happen, so I'm going to need to either go into the woods or I think this is more (laughs) along the lines of what Ernst is going to be talking about. Mm. I'm going to have to start taking care of my community. Like, Coleman, what you were talking about with uh, uh, black people in... um, the United States after the Civil War. They started their own communities, they took care of themselves, their own churches, their own institutions, and from what I understand, they were able to thrive quite well. Thomas Sowell uh, wrote about that as well. And that may be a direction that the U.S. will be headed into. My only concern there is with the nukes, who's going to take care of all of those structures. But that's like a whole other thing. Mm. So, Ernst, as far as that more Mm. decentralization model, I think that's what you're leaning in as your contingency plan. So I would love for you to talk a little bit about that. Then we are going to go to Super Chats. Sneed those Super Chats, everybody. And don't forget to subscribe and Mm. patreon.com slash break the rules if you're enjoying this conversation become a patron you are going to get a lot of great goodies be uh in doing so anyway Ernst, take it away mm. well uh, it's it's uh, it's not shocking but the fact that uh, when coleman talked about race statistics let me just give you a little window into my reality nine out of ten forms that i fill in in south africa i have to uh i have to designate my race uh because i have to keep statistics and all of this and uh, often those statistics are used to determine outcomes so and when it comes to uh, the racial categorization in south africa here's the here's the kicker it was just copy and pasted from the apartheid regime the anc did nothing to change it they just took the apartheid regime's uh, racial categorizations like yeah well this seems useful um and we've been living with it ever since um and that the previous regime's racial categorization has been influencing policy uh, even when the regime is dead um, the other thing is uh, something very important that you also mentioned, uh, Lev, is that uh, now look at me here living in South Africa. Listen to everything that I've explained to you over this uh, or told you about in this stream. And uh, let me just tell you, I'm not blackpilled. And if I'm not blackpilled, then uh, if you're living in America, you shouldn't be either. Um, the, the fact is, uh, the hard reality is, is that uh, being blackpilled is pretty pathetic. It's pre- it's a, if a blackpill was a real 
medication it would be a, a pacifier it would just pretty much pacify you and you'd sit there and well there's nothing i can do you just wallow in your nihilism and uh, watch the world around you get worse even though you can do something to make it better and to help people around you just sitting there in in, in wallowing in hopelessness and uh, uh, posting edgy stuff online uh, but when it comes to the solutions there's actually quite a bit so i've like to refer to myself as working in the solutions industry. I work for a, a, an organization that's part of a larger movement that is uh, looking at alternatives. We're not just swapping. Uh, you said earlier, Coleman, that uh, liberalism is uh, has a lot of faults, but it's the, the best of the worst. But uh, the thing is, maybe uh, people should uh, consider not swapping. Uh, you said earlier, Lev, that, uh, but what is the alternative then? What would you propose? Well, maybe you shouldn't just swap uh, the current dominant ideology with a new one. Uh, maybe you should think outside of that paradigm. Maybe you should start thinking outside of the party politics paradigm. That doesn't mean that you should abandon party politics and withdraw from it. Just don't put all your eggs in that basket. Uh, my culture and the people in South Africa have put a lot of their eggs, some of them, all of them, in the, in that basket, and it didn't it didn't turn out very well for them because their their destiny was then completely determined by forces beyond their control. Um, so when it comes to the solutions that we're doing, I mean, there's a long list, but I'll give you the the main ones. So firstly, uh, when it comes to building your own institutions. So the problem that I uh, explained earlier, uh, a big issue for my community is the fact that uh, education in my mother tongue is diminishing and it's, there's an active agenda by the by the government to to in that diminishing of it and there's an attack on it. Um, so what do you do? Do you either, well, firstly, you fight that uh, discriminatory legislation, but secondly, you also build, as you said, Lev, a contingency plan. You build your own universities. You build your own uh, institutions of learning, as we have done. So a lot of people talk about it. A lot of people propose this solution in the United States even, but they don't really follow through with it. So we have actually followed through with it. So we've firstly established uh, the solidarity movement that AfriForum is part of has established uh, the, the tertiary education institution, Academia. Uh, and then we've also last year, or, no, 2021, yeah, we built, oh, no, 2020, I think, we built the Soltech campus. So it's a technical college that was that cost 300 million rand to build. And uh, it was built through community uh, uh, donations. It was built through, the, let me blow your mind. So this is the power of, uh, of a community coming together. That 300 million rand university campus that was built, uh, the majority of its uh, funding came from donations from the community and none of those single donations exceeded 10 rand. 10 rand is not even a dollar. It's like 70 cents. So none of those donations that built a 300 million rand uh, state-of-the-art campus exceeded 70 cents. Now, of course, some people uh, donated more than 70 cents, but that was the that was the, the threshold. So And, and it, it was through a model where... Uh, individuals just uh, they they pay uh, they pay a membership fee to be part of uh, solidarity, but they 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 uh, gave consent that ten rand they pay an extra ten rand that then goes into a building fund. Uh, they paid seventy cents extra that goes into a building fund that was then used to build uh, that uh, that university or that technical college campus. That's the one solution. Uh, the other solution when it comes to safety, for example, so. 
the it's it's no secret that the south african police force is not fulfilling its constitutional mandate to keep citizens safe so well, how do you respond to that well we've established over 155 uh, neighborhood watches all across the country and they are run by volunteers their people don't get paid to do it they are run by over 10,000 volunteers that patrol their communities and make sure that uh, that crime is being dealt with there but all according to the law and they often work with um, law enforcement to, to make that happen. That's the other solution. And then I think what's very important when it comes to these types of solutions is that in the end, uh, you can rely on party politics and think, well, if, if my guy just gets into office, then everything's going to be fine. But what if your guy never gets into office? What if you wait for a generation? What if you wait for two generations? What if you? What if they never get into office? What if they get into office and they don't fulfill their promises? What do you do then? then you've pretty much uh, bet all your all your money and all your inheritance on a losing horse. So that's the thing, is that don't withdraw from party politics, but start working on alternatives as well. And the thing is, and this I think is the last lesson that I think all white pull and uh, silver lining from South Africa is the fact that I think one of the biggest lies that was told to my generation, specifically growing up in school, was that you need to grow up to change the world. You need to change everything all at once you need to be you need to work towards becoming the supreme leader of the entire world and to make it a better place but then a lot of children and people try to achieve that and they don't achieve it and then they fall back into just hopelessness and oh well i'm a failure so i'm going to give you a little bit of a hot take something that i've learned from through my my work don't don't think big you need to think small the thinking big is a scam you need to think small first think doable if, let's take some practical examples in South Africa. South Africa has a big litter problem. There's a lot of litter lying around. What are you going to try to do? Are you going to try and clean up the entire country or are you going to make sure your street is clean? You're going to make sure your backyard is clean. You're going to make sure your neighborhood is clean. You're going to make sure all your, your, the, your block is clean. That's a tangible goal you can set yourself and then you work at it and you can actually see yourself achieve it. Another thing, let's say, uh, let's take South Africa again. South Africa is plagued by crime. You're going to solve self, uh, crime on a national level. You're not going to be able to do that. You uh, or you and your band of friends or your team or your organization, not going to happen. So set yourself a goal. I'm going to make sure there's no crime in my street. I'm going to make sure there's no crime in my neighborhood. I'm going to make sure crime is kept to a minimum in my town. That's doable. Then uh, when you reach that goal, you get that motivation. Well, now I can expand. Now I can uh, expand my horizon. But if your goal from the start, like I said, if your goal was to think big, that thing that a lot of people say you should do, so I'm going to solve the crime problem of South Africa. A lot of people, you're not going to reach that goal. And a lot of people are going to fall back uh, into, oh, well, then, then, well, then I'm a failure. So I think start small. Doesn't mean you should never uh, aim for big aspirations, but start small first and get those accomplishments under your belt, you as an individual and you as a community. And that's that's what we did through AfriForum. AfriForum now has 300,000 members, but it started off in 2006 with three employees and zero members. Now we're the largest civil rights organization based on members in the Southern Hemisphere. Mm. But it's starting small. It's starting one neighborhood watch. It's starting one cleanup initiative. It's starting one project to uh, make your community a better place and to improve it. And it starts off with a team of two people. It starts off with a team of one people, uh, one person. You get a friend, then you get a team of two. Then you get another friend, you get a team of three. 
You build mm. from there. You make it realistic. You put uh, goals on the table that you can actually reach, and that will give you the energy to to expand and actually, in the end, achieve the things that you that you wanted to achieve. If you were thinking big, is to start small. Doesn't mean you shouldn't have those big aspirations. Excellent. Before we go to Coleman for the final uh, response uh, to that. I want to do the uh, Super Chat comments real quick. Uh, I think we've covered a lot of the things that the Super Chats talk about, but much respect to Glow in the Dark, who has been sneeding Super Chats all day. He is the official king of the king of the chat until he gets dethroned by another king or queen of the Super Chat in the uh, later streams. Speaking of which, Sticks Hex and Hammer 666, he is back this Tuesday Get ready, 10 a.m. versus Lore talking about critical race theory. So that should be a very interesting one. Anyway, glow in the dark, $20. Liberalism was developed on paper before it made contacted with reality. In theory, it works, but without a culture behind it, it falls apart fast. Liberalism isn't special. When we act like it is, the problem gets worse. Another $5. Liberalism has a hard time stopping theory from becoming policy, and hyper-individualism is a theory that was taken to the extreme like all theory works will ten dollars how much of people voting for liberalism is just they were taught it and that's all they know sf is a blip oh san francisco is a blip the politicians will make a show till the people get used to the crime five dollars your silver lining is a double-edged sword if a culture successfully gets formed like the mormons you better hope a caliphate never forms oh boy mormon caliphate here we go uh and finally ten dollars ha 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 Europe doesn't have race-based policies. Tell that to the kids that got struggled, snuggled, and then it was excused before it was an Asian that had a different culture. To be clear, that was in England. I'm not sure about, well, in, to be fair, in Cologne, Germany as well. But anyway, those are all the super chats. Coleman, uh, your pick, uh, respond or both, respond to what Ernst was talking about, maybe the super chats as well, and then we're going to finish off. Unfortunately, I actually, I have to go, um, but this has been an awesome conversation. Uh, it was really nice to learn more about your window into South Africa, and um, I've really enjoyed this. I hope, I hope, uh, I hope that I've contributed my share and that uh, my my takes are uh, useful to you guys and to to the audience. Absolutely. That's what BTR does. We bring all people together to have these conversations. I don't think otherwise this would have been able to happen. Coleman Hughes, Ernst, coming together from different parts of the world. This is the power of the internet, and we are bringing it to you. Where could people find you, Coleman, and do you have anything else you would want to share, promote, etc.? You can follow me on Twitter, at ColdXMan, C-O-L-D-X-M-A-N. You can look up my music videos on YouTube. I have one called Blasphemy that I think the crowd would like just look up cold man blasphemy and uh you can listen to my podcast it's called conversations with coleman wherever you listen to podcasts excellent coleman thank you so much i really appreciate your time i would love to have you back at a later date thank you so much brother i really appreciate it see you guys see ya so as we are finishing this up right now, let me adjust the screen, bring another window back in here. Any thoughts on the uh, sneedings of the Super Chat, Ernst? <laughs> well, uh, I would say my final thought would be um, uh, it's a shame Coleman isn't here because he mentioned uh, going, uh, not moving to Canada. And that made me think of uh, another thing that uh, a lot of people ask me as a South African is like, why don't you just immigrate, bro? And uh, the thing is, as my friend uh, Russell Lamberti says, uh, there's a time to move and there's a time to dig a trench. And uh, you can you can move, you can keep running, 
but uh, in the end you're just fleeing rising water and in, in the end there's not going to be any higher ground to flee to uh, be uh, that you're going to be able to flee to so at some point you're going to have to dig a trench at some point you're going to have to lay foundations and settle somewhere and fight for something and uh, my fight here uh, my fight here with the other uh, solution industry builders here in south africa so i think that would be my final thought in regards to tonight's uh, topics is to uh, think about that idea of a time to move and a time to dig a trench. And there's actually a, cha- a, a, a video on my channel where I discussed it with Russell Lamberti. You can just search um, a time to move, uh, a time to dig trenches, uh, conscious caracal, and you'll find it. Um, but yeah, Lev, thank you very much for this uh, incredible conversation, this incredible opportunity as well. I, I enjoy Coleman's writing, and it was very nice to be able to uh, to interact with him and talk with him and uh, uh, share some ideas. So uh, I really appreciate it. And like you said, this uh, this podcast has made it happen and bringing people together. So if people want to find uh, my work, they can just uh, go to Conscious Caracal, search that on YouTube. Uh, on YouTube. Or they can go to concaracal, C-O-N-C-A-R-A-C-A-L on Twitter. Or you can just search Conscious Caracal on Twitter and you'll find me there. Um, and yeah, I, I do uh, content not only focusing on South Africa, but also the the, the wider world and specifically the West. Uh, on my YouTube channel, I do a lot of interviews there and also solo content. Um, so yeah, that's the if you want to support uh, the, the work that my organization does, you can go to Friends of Afri Forum. Just Google Friends of Afri Forum, and you can become a, a donator to uh, to Afri Forum as well. If you want to support uh, the alternative here in South Africa, rather than uh, just another centralized state based solution. Um, but yeah, that's uh, that's me. That's that's all I have to show. And uh, yeah, thanks again, Lev. I, I really appreciate the opportunity and the platform. Excellent, nerds. And before we go, for all of you who are listening, who are on Discord, go to the Discord link that I just posted in the chat. This is the official Break the Rules Discord. Be part of what is being grown here because I think this is the time to really do it. People have been very disconnected ideologically, culturally, and now it's time to bring people together. Like I said before, a lot of great streams coming up, which I cannot mention yet who is coming, but believe me, they are going to be very, very big people, the biggest. And that is what we are here for. And uh, lastly, if you want to support this, if you want to grow this, because this needs to happen, like I said before, all these connections, patreon.com slash break the rules. Go there right now, become a patron. You're going to get MP3s of the episodes after they come out. When you become a uh, $5 patron, you will also get opportunities to come on the shows. The more shows that are going to be scheduled in advance, the likelier it is going to be that I'm going to be doing certain episodes where ahead of time I'm going to notify the patrons that uh, you guys have the opportunity to be physically on the stream with the people who are going to be here. This is when it's happening and we are going to work it out because I would love to have more interactions going on. The more streams I schedule in advance, the more streams are going to be, I'm going to be able to do where more people are going to be able to interact and participate in these uh, discussions like after the stream ends and so on and so forth. When you become a... Um, patron, you are going to get very, very beautiful magnets created by my father, Alexander Polyakov. And I know what you're thinking. What does this have to do with anything? But believe me, art is 
something that has a big role in the future. It inspires people. It gives people something to live for. My father is an amazing artist, and if you become a patron, you are going to get one of these beautiful magnets. These are random magnets. You're not going to know which one you get unless you become a $50 member. If you become a $50 patron, you are going to get very beautiful custom magnets, whatever design you want. And if you're a fan of sticks, you are going to get not so much a magnet as a sculpture, much like the one you are seeing on the screen right now. Maybe it's gonna be a little bit smaller, but either way, this is something that you have to look forward to. We are creating I thought art. you were gonna yes. say, uh, you, if you like sticks, you're gonna send them a spoon magnet. That, you know what? <laughs> now that I think about it, now that I think about it, here's what we're gonna do. You've inspired me, Ernst. For the $20 members, this is happening right now. For the $20 members, if you become a patron right now, there's going to be a spoon magnet that my father <laughs> is going to create for you. That's not even for the $50. That's for the $20. That's a steal. That is a steal. So become a patron today. I'm posting it one more time, patreon.com slash break the rules. You are not going to regret it. There's going to be a lot of great things coming up. That's it. Ernst, thank you so much for being here. Uh, thank you so much for Coleman Hughes for being here. Bring everybody yeah. together. Subscribe. Add a like. Click the bell. The bell is incredibly important. You got to click that bell for the algorithm's sake. That's it. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you for a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you for a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you for a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you for a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you for a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you for a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you for a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you for a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you for a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you for a wonderful.